Section 8 of Manners, Customs, and Dress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donna Stewart. Manners, Customs, and Dress During the Middle Ages and During the Renaissance Period by Paul Lacroix. Section 8. We will now take a glance at the agricultural population, who, as we have already stated, were only emancipated from serfdom at the end of the eighteenth century. But whatever might have been formerly the civil condition of the rural population, everything leads us to suppose that there were no special changes in their private and domestic means of existence from a comparatively remote period down almost to the present time a small poem of the thirteenth century entitled de louise tillemont au vilain gives a clear though rough sketch of the domestic state of the peasantry strange as it may seem it must be acknowledged that with a few exceptions resulting from the progress of time it would not be difficult even at the present day to find the exact type maintained in the country districts farthest away from the capital and large towns at all events, they were faithfully represented at the time of the Revolution of 1789. We gather from this poem, which must be considered an authentic and most interesting document, that the manse, or dwelling, of the villain comprised three distinct buildings. The first for the corn, the second for the hay and straw, the third for the man and his family. In this rustic abode a fire of vine branches and faggots sparkled in a large chimney furnished with an iron pot-hanger, a tripod, a shovel, large fire-irons, a cauldron, and a meat-hook. Next to the fireplace was an oven, and in close proximity to this an enormous bedstead, on which the villain, his wife, his children, and even the stranger who asked for hospitality could all be easily accommodated. A kneading trough, a table, a bench, a cheese cupboard, a jug, and a few baskets made up the rest of the furniture. The villain also possessed other utensils, such as a ladder, a mortar, a hand-mill, for everyone then was obliged to grind his own corn, a mallet, some nails, some gimlets, fishing-lines, hooks, and baskets, etc. His working implements were a plough, a scythe, a spade, a hoe, large shears, a knife, and a sharpening stone. He also had a wagon, with harness for several horses, so as to be able to accomplish the different tasks required of him under feudal rights, either by his proper lord or by the sovereign. For the villain was liable to be called upon to undertake every kind of work of this sort. His dress consisted of a blouse of cloth or skin fastened by a leather belt round the waist, an overcoat or mantle of thick woolen stuff, which fell from his shoulders to halfway down his legs, shoes or large boots, short woolen trousers, and from his belt there hung his wallet and a sheath for his knife. He generally went bareheaded, but in cold weather or in rain he wore a sort of hat of similar stuff to his coat, or one of felt with a broad brim. He seldom wore moufle, or padded gloves, except when engaged in hedging. A small kitchen garden, which he cultivated himself, was usually attached to the cottage, which was guarded by a large watchdog. There was also a shed for the cows, whose milk contributed to the sustenance of the establishment. 
and on the thatched roof of this and his cottage the wild cats hunted the rats and mice. The family were never idle, even in the bad season, and the children were taught from infancy to work by the side of their parents. If, then, we find so much resemblance between the abodes of the villains of the thirteenth century and those of the inhabitants of the poorest communes of France in the present day, we may fairly infer that there must be a great deal which is analogous between the inhabitants themselves of the two periods. For in the chateaux, as well as in the towns, we find the material condition of the dwellings modifying itself conjointly with that of the moral condition of the inhabitants. Another little poem, entitled On the Twenty-Four Kinds of Villains, composed about the same period as the one above referred to, gives us a graphic description of the varieties of character among the feudal peasants. One example is given of a man who will not tell a traveller the way, but merely in a surly way answers, You know it better than I. Another, sitting at his door on a Sunday, laughs at those passing by and says to himself, when he sees a gentleman going hawking with a bird on his wrist, Ah, that bird will eat a hen today, and our children could all feast upon it. Another is described as a sort of madman who equally despises God, the saints, the church, and the nobility. His neighbor is an honest simpleton who, stopping in admiration before the doorway of Notre-Dame in Paris in order to admire the statues of Pepin and Charlemagne and their successors, has his pocket picked of his purse. Another villain is supposed to make trade of pleading the cause of others before Messieurs de Bailly. He is very eloquent in trying to show that in the time of their ancestors the cows had a free right of pasture in such and such a meadow, or the sheep on such and such a ridge. Then there is the miser and the speculator, who converts all his possessions into ready money so as to purchase grain against a bad season, but of course the harvest turns out to be excellent, and he does not make a farthing but runs away to conceal his ruin and rage." there is also the villain who leaves his plough to become a poacher there are many other curious examples which altogether tend to prove that there has been but little change in the village class since the first periods of history notwithstanding the miseries to which they were generally subject the rural population had their days of rest and amusement which were then much more numerous than at present at the period the festivals of the church were frequent and rigidly kept and as each of them was the pretext for a forced holiday from manual labor the peasants thought of nothing after church but of amusing themselves they drank talked sang danced and above all laughed for the laugh of our forefathers quite rivalled the homeric laugh and burst forth with a noisy joviality the wakes or evening parties which are still the custom in most of the french provinces and which are of very ancient origin, formed important events in the private lives of the peasants. It was at these that the strange legends and vulgar superstitions which so long fed the minds of the ignorant classes were mostly created and propagated. It was there that those extraordinary and terrible fairy tales were created, as well as those of magicians, witches, spirits, etc., it was there that the matrons, whose great age justified their experience, insisted on proving, by absurd tales, that they knew all the marvellous secrets for causing happiness or for curing sickness. 
Consequently, in those days the most enlightened rustic never for a moment doubted the truth of witchcraft. In fact, one of the first efforts at printing was applied to reproducing the most ridiculous stories under the title of the Évangile de Conwy ou Kenwy, and which had been previously circulated in manuscript, and had obtained implicit belief. The author of this remarkable collection asserts that the matrons of his neighbourhood had deputed him to put together in writing the sayings suitable for all conditions of rural life which were believed in by them and were announced at the wakes. The absurdities and childish follies which he has dared to register under their dictation are almost incredible. The Évangile des Quenouilles, which was as much believed in as holy writ tells us amongst other secrets which it contains for the advantage of the reader that a girl wishing to know the christian name of her future husband has but to stretch the first thread she spins in the morning across the doorway and that the first man who passes and touches the thread will necessarily have the same name as the man she is destined to marry Another of the stories in this book was that if a woman, on leaving off work on Saturday night, left her distaff loaded, she might be sure that the thread she would obtain from it during the following week would only produce linen of bad quality, which could not be bleached. This was considered to be proved by the fact that the Germans wore dark brown colored shirts, and it was known that the women never unloaded their distaffs from Saturday to Monday should a woman enter a cow-house to milk her cows without saying god and saint bridget bless you she was thought to run the risk of the cows kicking and breaking the milk-pail and spilling the milk this silly nonsense compiled like oracles was printed as late as fourteen ninety three eighty years later a gentleman of brittany named noel du file lord of Erisay, councillor in the parliament of rennes published under the title of Rustic and Amusing Discourses, a work intended to counteract the influence of the famous Évangile des Quenouilles. This new work was a simple and true sketch of country habits, and proved the elegance and artless simplicity of the author, as well as his accuracy of observation. He begins thus, Occasionally, having to retire into the country more conveniently and uninterruptedly to finish some business, on a particular holiday, as I was walking, I came to a neighboring village where the greater part of the old and young men were assembled, in groups of separate ages, for, according to the proverb, each seeks his like. The young were practicing the bow, jumping, wrestling, running races, and playing other games. The old were looking on, some sitting under an oak with their legs crossed and their hats lowered over their eyes, others leaning on their elbows criticizing every performance, and refreshing the memory of their own youth, and taking a lively interest in seeing the gambols of the young people. The author states that on questioning one of the peasants to ascertain who was the cleverest person present, the following dialogue took place. The one you see on his elbow, hitting his boots, which have white strings, with a hazel stick, is called Anselm. He is one of the rich ones of the village, he is a good workman, and not a bad rider for the flat country. And the one you see by his side, with his thumb in his belt, hanging from which is a large game bag, containing spectacles and an old prayer book, is called Pasquier, one of the greatest wits within a day's journey. Nay, were I to say two, I should not be lying. 
Anyhow, he is certainly the readiest of the whole company to open his purse to give drink to his companions. And that one, I asked, with the large Milanese cap on his head, who holds an old book? That one, he answered, who is scratching the end of his nose with one hand and his beard with the other? That one, I replied, and who has turned towards us? Why, he said, that is Roger Bonton, a merry, careless fellow, who up to the age of fifty kept the parish school. But changing his first trade, he has become a wine-grower. However, he cannot resist the feast days when he brings us his old books and reads to us as long as we choose, such works as the Calendrier des Bergers, Fable des Sopes, Le Roman de la Rose, Mathiolo, Alain Chartier, Les Vigiles du Feu Roi Charles, Les Deux Grébins, and others. Neither, with his old habit of warbling, can he help singing on Sundays in the choir, and he is called Huguet. The other, sitting near him, looking over his shoulder into his book, and wearing a seal-skin belt with a yellow buckle, is another rich peasant of the village, not a bad villain, named Lubin, who also lives at home, and is called the little old man of the neighborhood. After this artistic sketch, the author dilates on the goodman Anselm. He says, This good man possessed a moderate amount of knowledge, was a goodish grammarian, a musician, somewhat of a sophist, and rather given to picking holes in others. Some of Anselm's conversation is also given, and after beginning by describing in glowing terms the bygone days which he and his contemporaries had seen, and which he stated to be very different to the present, he goes on to say, I must own, my good old friends, that I look back with pleasure on our young days. At all events, the mode of doing things in those days was very superior and better in every way to that of the present. Oh, happy days! Oh, fortunate times when our fathers and grandfathers, whom may God absolve, were still among us. And he said this, he would raise the rim of his hat. He contented himself as to dress with a good coat of thick wool, well lined according to the fashion. And for feast days and other important occasions, one of thick cloth lined with some old gabardine. So we see, says Monsieur Le Roux de Lancy, at the end of the fifteenth century, that the old peasants complained of the changes in the village customs, and of the luxury which every one wished to display in his furniture or apparel. On this point, it seems, there has been little or no change. We read that from the time of Homer down to the excellent author of rustic discourses, and even later, the old people found fault with the manners of the present generation, and extolled those of their forefathers, which they themselves had criticized in their own youth. End of section 8 Recording by Donna Stewart, Seattle, Washington